Welcome to The Jesse Garcia Show, your half-hour home for politics, culture, and art. We come to you every Monday with a new story about your world. On today's show, we have Nathan Gonzalez, a political analyst who's been featured on CNN, Fox News, and Meet the Press. Nathan is editor and publisher of Inside Elections, which provides nonpartisan opinion and research of political races. He will talk about campaigns to watch for in the 2018 cycle, lessons learned from the 2016 election, and his thoughts about a Latino running for president in 2020. Are you a Latino college student interested in a congressional internship? Apply to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute. The fall deadline for its congressional internship program in Washington, D.C. is March 9th. The semester internship includes pay, round-trip transportation, housing, health insurance, and leadership training. Apply today at www.chci.org. That's www.chci.org. See you in the fall. And here's your weekly news update. Are you ready for the Oscars? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will hand out its gold statues on Sunday, March 4th on the ABC Network. Just don't expect any of the actors to be thanking their mommies, papis, and abuelos in Spanish. For the third year in a row, no Latinos have been nominated for Oscars in the four acting categories. In a recent New York Times story by Brooke Barnes, he shared that although Latinos make up 18% of the U.S. population, only 3% of speaking characters in movies released in the last decade were Latino. That figure comes from a 2017 study by Stacey L. Smith, an associate professor at the University of Southern California. The Times story also notes that in the 90-year history of the Oscars, only one Hispanic man has won Best Actor. That was Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Bergerac in 1951, and no Hispanic woman has been named Best Actress. We've come close three times since 1998, with nominations for Fernanda Montenegro in 1998's Central Station. In 2002, we had Sanma Hayek, who starred and co-produced Frida. And in 2004, we had Catalina Sandino Moreno in Maria Full of Grace. Amazing performances, but still no wins. Sanma Hayek got rave reviews in her film Beatriz at Dinner and was in the running for an Oscar, but got no love from the Academy on nomination morning. Each year, millions of Latinos across the globe tune in to see the Oscars reward actors who are non-Hispanic. The Hollywood Reporter broke down the global ratings for the Oscar ceremony back in 2015. 5.4 million viewers tuned in from South America, plus another 3.8 million viewers from Mexico. An average of 40 million Americans watch the ceremony each year. Ironically, the centerpiece of the ceremony, the coveted 8-pound, 24-carat, gold-plated Oscar statue that eludes so many Latinos in Hollywood, was modeled after a Mexican man, according to Color Lines. That's right, the Oscar trophy is based on the physique of Mexican filmmaker and actor Emilio Fernandez.
1929, Fernandez was asked to pose in the nude by movie studio art director and Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences member Cedric Gibbons. Gibbons was tasked with designing the first ever movie award trophy. His sketch became the foundation for artist George Stanley's famous sculpture of the Oscar. Tune in March 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on ABC to see if an Emilio, I mean an Oscar, is won by Latinos in other categories. Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro's fantasy film, The Shape of Water, is up for 13 awards, including nominations for del Toro as Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture. Filmmaker Carlos Saldana is up for Best Animated Feature with Ferdinand. Coco is in the same category, but the Anglo director and producer get the award for the beautiful story that was written and voiced over by Latinos. Also, watch for Chile's nomination for Best Foreign Language Film, A Fantastic Woman, about the life and struggles of a trans woman. Lastly, a Special Achievement Award will be given to Mexican director and multiple Oscar winner Alejandro González Iñárritu for his work using virtual reality in 2017's Flesh and Sand. Red states, blue states, get ready for attack ads and heated debates. We're headed into the 2018 elections, which will dominate the news cycle starting in March with the primaries and leading up to the general election on November 6. Some are already predicting wins that may see both houses of Congress switch power, but not so fast. We've been down this road before. Remember 2016? Today's guest is Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections. He will talk about covering elections, surveying political candidates, and I will try to get some predictions out of him. Also, do we have a strong Latino ready for 2020? Let's find out. Okay, Nathan, welcome to the podcast. A lot of people run away from politics. It's something that they don't like discussing, gets people into fights. But you're in the middle of it. You're analyzing it. What made you get into this political analysis field? Well, I kind of stumbled into it a little bit. I mean, I'd always been interested in journalism, in the media. I mean, I was writing for the school paper when I was in eighth grade and moving on, but I wasn't, I didn't grow up as a political junkie. Uh, but then, uh, and I grew up on the West Coast. I grew up in Oregon, went to a small school in Southern California, but I did one semester in Washington, D.C. as an undergrad. And I caught the political bug. I figured out, okay, I have that love for media and journalism. I want to write about politics. And so then it's just been a kind of a learning curve from there. And I've, it's really something I've enjoyed. And, you know, politics, it can either, uh, you can love it or hate it. But as a journalist, I can, I can fuel you either way, depending on what the, what's happening for the day. But uh, I, I just, I really feel grateful to do what I do because I, I love it and I have some flexibility for my family. Awesome. Now, what tools do you use to do what you do, to forecast these elections, to identify the, the candidates that are going to make it in this election cycle? Well, Jesse, I can't give away everything because I have four <laughs> kids to feed. But uh, the short answer is we try to use as many tools as possible. I mean, there's a, there's a, a quantitative side to what we do. Uh, we are not pollsters but we try to digest as much polling as possible. That means digesting public and private polling, partisan and nonpartisan polling. 
Uh, we probably don't have time to go into each of those, but we try to just get as much number, as many numbers as we can, and hopefully that will see a trend. Uh, then there's also a qualitative side where we do just old-fashioned reporting, get people on the phone, whether it's consultants or, or sources that are in individual states and districts. Uh, we meet with candidates. We'll meet with probably 200 candidates this cycle, meet with them face-to-face. Just the federal ones running for Congress, correct? Uh, the federal ones and some for governor as well, uh, but mainly congressional, either House or Senate or Senate candidates. And it's great. I mean, we get the chance to we talk about where they were born and what their parents did for a living, where they go to school and their professional background, other elective offices they've run for, because I think that can be a window into how they're going to perform as a candidate at the congressional level. What are some of your pet peeves in this interview? When you bring this candidate before you, what are the some of the warning signs, red flags that you've seen? Well, I wrote I wrote a post a few years ago now for a roll call, the Capitol Hill newspaper called Six Things Losing Candidates Say. And I encourage you, you know, your listeners to um, to check it out because it, it's sort of, it gets to the answer of your question. I mean, when, for example, when a candidate says I'm running a grassroots campaign. That means they're not going to raise any money. Uh, or if they come into the candidate interview and they have a family member with them you know, running their campaign, that's usually not a good sign unless they are a, a professional a professional consultant. Uh, but I think just in general talking points. I mean, I understand this is sort of a game and, and they have a message that they have to get out, but trying to convey that message uh, but still look sounding like a real person I think is important. And just a, I also enjoy a, a level of – of candor, just about how it's not all going to be easy. I, to me, when a candidate comes in and it's going to be bang bang, uh, you know, this and this, I'm going to win. It's like, well, that's not. It's not going to be that easy. You might win, but let's talk about the difficulties and how you're going to overcome those. In 2016, we're handed a surprise in the presidential election. None, the majority, 99%, got got it wrong. The analysis, the polls. What has changed since then to avoid that mistake that was made by so many in the field? Well, I'm glad this is a three-hour podcast, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, where do where do we? Start? I think that 2016. I, the biggest lesson I think from 2016 in terms of looking forward to handicapping is try to make sure that um, we're focused, or I'm focused. I'll keep it for myself. I'm focused on the data that matters. I think one of the temptations of 2016 was focusing on national numbers, the national uh, polling, which had Hillary Clinton uh, defeating Donald Trump. And in the national ballot, that was actually correct. I mean, she did win the popular vote by two and a half points, but that's not how we elect a president of the United States. This is a state by state district, state by state uh, how we elect a president, but the race for Congress is a state by state, Senate battle, district by district, House battle. And so it's it's interesting to look at the at the national numbers. It can tell us about the political mood, but it really what matters most is the districts and the states. And so I think that's why, you know, just making sure, you know, focusing on getting getting the right data. You know, one of the things about 2016 is that I think a lot of it, it wasn't necessarily that the polling was wrong. It's just we had some missing polling. I think if we had had more polling in Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota, we would have realized there were more toss-up states and that President Trump had a much better chance than having to sweep all of what we thought were the toss-up states at the time. Now, for 2018, what are some of the dramatic races that we, you know, we should really look for? What are some of the the things that we could expect to see that night. Based on what you know now, what can we expect? 
This is like making me choose between my children. Uh, all of them are my favorite. Uh, it's my job to, to look at all of them. I, I think there are a couple things. If we're on the Senate side, I think looking at these um, red state uh, Democratic senators, these 10 Democratic senators who are running for re-election in states that Donald Trump carried, such as uh, a Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Joe Donnelly of Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Claire McCaskill in Missouri, in Missouri. Uh, do they all survive? Um, I, you know, sitting here today, what eight months from the election, I, I think I don't know. I don't think all of them are going to survive. I'm not sure which one, but that matters for the majority. Making uh, Democrats getting to a majority because if they lose any of those, they have to come up with uh, they have to compensate for that on the Republican taking over Republican seats, and there just aren't a lot of good Democratic takeover opportunities. There's uh, Dean Heller's uh, in Nevada, who is the only Republican in a Hillary Clinton state. And uh, the open seat in Arizona where Jeff Flake isn't running for re-election. You know, so to get to plus two, Democrats, if they re-elect all their own, gain those two seats, then it's a majority. But if they lose any uh, of their own seats, then you got to make up for it in Texas or Tennessee, uh, Mississippi, Nebraska. I mean, those are possible, but very, you know, steep, steep uphill battles in, in the House. And the range of possibilities, I think we're talking about do Democrats have a good night, which might leave them just short of a majority, or have a, a historic night, which would be well above uh, the 24 that they need. I think some key places are like Orange County, California, where Hillary Clinton was the first Democratic presidential nominee since 1936 to win Orange County. So then there's a discussion of is Orange County now a blue county yeah. or is it just a Republican county? that doesn't like Donald Trump. And I think that it's probably more the latter, but what does turnout look like? If, if the Democrats that are there in Orange County are, are so uh, incensed with the president that they vote out in high, or turn out in higher numbers, and you still have an apathetic Republican base who doesn't really know what to do in a midterm election, then uh, Democrats could, I mean, there are four targeted House seats in Orange County alone. And so I think that's a key place. If, if Democrats win two seats out of Orange County, I would say that's a good night. If they win three or four, that's probably a great night for Democrats. And the potential out of Pennsylvania with a redistricting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Has, thank, thank the state Supreme Court for throwing a wild card and, and giving a new map. Um, Democrats had about six takeover opportunities in Pennsylvania before the state Supreme Court made that decision. They have six now uh, after the, with the new map, but they are better. Um, they are better opportunities. Better so... You know, similar to Orange County, Democrats need to gain a handful of seats out of Pennsylvania, I think, to make up that 24. 24, a 24 uh, seat minority is enough where you can't just cherry pick your way, getting one here or one there. You got to find some clumps of states, and Pennsylvania might be one of those places for, uh, uh, for Democrats. In 2020, are there any credible, strong Latino candidates that we can see mounting? a serious presidential campaign? I think uh, Castro's comments were, were kind of refreshing. Um, you know, he said he's right. I mean, he's exploring. He's, he's, look, he, sure. he, he's looking at it. And, and I think that's you have candidates that try to pretend like they just accidentally end up in Iowa or New Hampshire, but at least he's, he's up front about it. And I think based on his resume uh, and his profile, I think he he's Mayor a— Mayor San Antonio, HUD secretary. Who you know, member of, the, member of the cabinet. And I think you know you have to view him as a credible as a credible candidate. Uh, the, I think one of the biggest, two of the biggest questions coming out of 2020 is for any Democratic presidential candidate is 
what are they going to bring to the table beyond being against President Trump? Every Democrat is going to be against President Trump. I think Democratic primary voters are going to be looking for what else? <laughs> what else do you have? And so whether it's Castro or any of the others, 5,000 that are going to run, uh, what does that look like? Um, and on the Republican side, uh, Marco Rubio. I mean, there's Marco Rubio. First, we have to talk, what does the president do? And what is the president standing? I don't think a Marco Rubio or a Ted Cruz would uh, would challenge the president in a primary. Um, that's that, Sitting here right now, that would be difficult for any Republican to do. Um, but if he doesn't run for re-election, or if we look even further down the line, I think you have, you know that Senator Rubio's and Cru- uh, and Senator Cruz uh, have presidential aspirations, and, and they're young enough that I, I think they'll at least mm-hmm. give it another shot at some point. One last question: What is your website and all the social media you want to <laughs> plug so people stay engaged? Because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. A lot of people don't like talking about politics, but guess what? Your boss, your landlord, the people <laughs> that run your life are in politics. So yeah. how do they get more involved? Well, and I, people, you can, whether you are, want to be involved in politics or not or engaged, politics affects your life. And I think sometimes we think about politics as only Washington, but politics is the city council and the mayor and the school board. And, you know, as a father of four kids, I mean, I... I pay attention, you know, I'm, I'm paid to pay attention to the national election, but on a personal level, I'm engaged in at a local level because, you know, schools are going to impact my, my kids' lives. So you can you can run away from politics, but it's going to find you and affect your life in some way. Um, where uh, InsideElections.com is, is, the, is the main uh, website that we have, uh, but I would also plug uh, RollCall.com, which is a Capitol Hill newspaper that I think has some, provides some, where some of my writing appears and has some excellent uh, political coverage. My Twitter handle is just Nathan L. Gonzalez, and it is Gonzalez with an S and not a Z. Um, but uh, so you can, you can kind of check out, uh, I'll, I usually post to, you know, link to things that I write. Um, link to things, smart things that other people write, and you'll get some baseball and, and kid stuff thrown in Great. there too. Do you have you committed to a network for this election? So season? well, I mean, I'm currently a CNN uh, political analyst, so you you might see me on there. Um, we'll see how long that goes for and, and and what that looks like. But right now, it's, it's CNN. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your insight. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you on the Sunday uh, Sunday morning talk shows and on CNN. No problem. Thank you. 